So Second Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things as that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So far, let us pray. O Lord God, indeed, to dwell under the shadow of your mighty wings is the greatest place of refuge and the greatest place of joy. And we thank you that the church has been purchased and is secure in your shadow. O Lord, may we abide there. May we rest in your provision. And I pray this morning that as we turn now to your word, that you would give us the, the comfort and the assurance to, uh, to know you more and to grow in the grace and the knowledge of you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to, uh, this morning, deal with verse 2, the, uh, the greeting of this letter. And um, yeah, there's a lot in there. We're used to hearing greetings, and I thought it's important to unpack what that might mean for us this morning. And so I have four points. Um, they are favor, fullness, Fountain and foundation. Favor, fullness, fountain, and foundation. So first of all, the favor, grace, and peace. The word grace, charis, greetings, is how many of the letters of the apostles will begin. Grace and peace to you. Greetings have been a normal part of the letters of um, the world throughout history. People will greet one another with some well-wishing. And it's no different in the Bible. In Greco-Roman culture, it was just simply greetings to you, uh, a wish for health. In the Bible, it's more than just a wish. It's a prayer. It's a prayer desire when we give these greetings to the flock. And the apostle wishes it upon the church. And it may be that the combination of grace and peace is a combination of the Greek word charis and peace from the Hebrew, shalom, and it's almost like it's drawing in both the Jewish and the uh, Greeks together in one faith, one common heritage that God will bless. But I think even more deeply, uh, grace and peace have overtones of the priestly blessing that would be given to the covenant people when in Numbers we get taught the blessing. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And you see the combination of grace and peace even in that Aaronic blessing, that uh, covenantal blessing. Think about the word grace for a second. It is the unmerited favor, the covenantal love that God freely gives on people who don't deserve anything. Because in Roman courts, grace was given but it was kind of backhanded grace because it would only be given to someone who merited it. And so it's really not grace at that point anymore. They would say it was based on your potentia, which means your economic status in society. 
Not so in the church, not at all in the church. Grace is truly grace to us because it is given to people of no status. We have nothing to offer, no potentia to give to God, do we? Have you considered the grace of God in our lives this morning? Psalm 81 verse 12 describes what happens when God withholds grace from his people. It says, so I gave them up to their own hearts and they walked in their own counsels. You see that? You start thinking your own ways and drifting to your own ways. Left to ourselves, our hearts will lead us astray, won't they? And so the Apostle Paul describes a heart like that ultimately is one dead in trespasses and sins. Left completely and abandoned to ourselves, we would be completely dead. But even as Christians, when God withholds his grace, it will leave us. It will be a sanctifying withholding. But think of where we were. And think of the enslavement sin gives us. And, and even as Christians, what happens when we go our own ways? It affects all sorts of people. People within the walls of the church as well as those without the, the, without the walls. Think of things like addictions. This past week I was listening to a podcast. And it was talking about all kinds of addictions. Pornography, alcohol, phone addictions, Facebook obsession to getting the likes. It could be an addiction to appearance. It could be an addiction to your physique, your athletic achievements. It could be work addiction. It could be addiction to the praise of men, status. Now, the story of how these addictions affect us, for each one of us, they're unique stories. It could be a quick fall or a long, drawn-out slide. But the results are similar. In every addiction, whether the extreme ones or the not-so-extreme ones, as our society would see them, the results are always going to be emptiness, shame, guilt, and agony within. And for some, there's extreme life-changing consequences. Just think of drug addiction. Think of alcohol, what it has done to people. And the only hope and the only deliverance we have from all of these sins is the grace of God Almighty, he scoops us up from the depth. And in his grace, he delivers us. He pulls us out of quicksand that we had no chance of getting ourselves out of. Even as believers, don't think it's in you to beat sin. The power has to come from above. We need God's wisdom and his grace to triumph. Now, the outworking of God's grace is peace. Shalom. To us, the standard Jewish greeting. Psalm 122, 6 through 8, Paul, uh, Paul, Peter, no, let's go back to the Old Testament. David says this. He says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. Peace be within thy walls. And prosperity, you see that? Peace and prosperity flourishing within thy palaces. For my brethren and companions' sake, I will now say, Peace be within thee. And that is why the Jews will greet one another with shalom. They are wishing, ultimately, God's prosperity flourishing upon them. And that is, in the New Testament, picked up with the blessings. Blessed art thou, blessed art thou. It's prosperity, flourishing, true abundance. But the question is, how can the enemy of God be at peace with him? 
because God's grace has to account for God's justice. Grace, yes, is freely and undeservedly given, but God cannot compromise his justice, can he, or else he's no longer God. Right now, um, I've been reading at home the uh, biography of William Wilberforce. Before he was converted, William Wilberforce was one of the wittiest, most likable, and popular men in all of England. He was a man of extreme wealth. He had inherited that. He was the best friend of William Pitt, who was then the Prime Minister of England. But then through a series of events, he would go on a long journey in a carriage with this extremely intelligent, like triple PhD Cambridge scholar, who happened to also be a Methodist. And they would have conversations. Now, Methodism at that time was seen as kind of like extremism and nutcase. But don't forget, this guy was extremely intelligent. And for two months, they would take their carriage into Europe, and they would chat and talk. And one of the things they did together was read a book called The Rise and Progress of the Soul. I love that book. I have it on my shelf. It, uh, actually, Emil gave it to me. It was a fantastic read. And it is uh, a Puritan book. And uh, it was through that book and those conversations with Milne that he would get convicted. But conviction isn't enough. It was in the agony of his soul that he would write after that trip, November 27th, 1784. He said this in his diary. I must awake to my dangerous state and never be at rest till I have made my peace with God. My heart is so hard, my blindness so great that I cannot get a due hatred of sin. Though I see I am all corrupt, blinded to the perception of spiritual things. That is the beginning of an awakening is the knowledge that you are not at peace with God. Some of you may be here this morning. You have been awakened to your guilt, and you're left in agony. You have not, as JP talked about, repented. You have regret. There's a big difference. And so Colossians 1, verse 20, says this, that through Jesus, he has made peace through the blood of his cross. There is peace in the blood, justice satisfied in the blood. Ephesians 6 tells us to be equipped with the armor of God and to be shod with the the sandals of the preparation of the gospel of what? Peace. We are heralding peace to this world. That is the message we bring. Because Jesus took the wrath of God on himself, and so in Romans 5, 1, it will say this. Remember the question I posed, how can God give grace and not compromise his justice? Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And so he makes peace for us by faith in God. He accounts us cleansed in Jesus' death. Justice is satisfied. So William Wilberforce would go on to pay a visit to a friend he met in his youth. He would go to visit John Newton, the slave trader, now pastor, in London. It was an awkward meeting for Wilberforce, but after a few meetings, he would write this. When I came away, I find, found in my mind a calm, tranquil state more humbled and more 
looking devoutly up to God. By January 11th of 1785, remember the first diary entry was November 27th that I read to you. By January 11th, 1785, he would go to John Newton's church. And on Good Friday, April 14th, he would partake of communion for the first time. Two days later on Easter, he would do so again. And then he wrote in his diary this. He says, surely this Sabbath of all others calls forth these feelings in a supreme degree, a frame of united love and triumph. Well becomes it, and holy confidence and unrestrained affection. William Wilberforce was a changed man. He was now at peace with God. And so this greeting, grace and peace be multiplied to you, is given to the church because it establishes the fundamental reality that, dear brothers and sisters, we are at peace with God through Jesus Christ. This brings me to the second point. Grace and peace be multiplied, be multiplied, may be given in abundance. That's what that means. Let us be clear about this. There is no time in our Christian journey that such a desire for grace and peace to be multiplied to us is inappropriate or unnecessary. The multiplication of God's grace and peace is our constant need. It is the staple diet on which Christian sanctification is nourished. And so grace and peace begins in justification and it continues in multiplication as it sanctifies us. It will be the greater discovery of God himself, the fullness of all these blessings. We can never deplete God. Because he is the infinite source of giving to us. I think of the incredible words here when God calls Abram, right? And he's going to make a covenant with him. And he says so, he says so much of what he's going to give him. But he says this from the outset. He says, fear not, Abram. He's not Abraham yet. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. He says he is his reward. The reward of Abram would be God. Remember the Levites, they get no inheritance in the land. But what do they get? God himself. You know, you think about what this means as we need to serve in a church and we need to have multiplied grace for each one of us. We need his grace to serve. We need his grace to minister rightly and wisely. And oh, for the grace of God to have that wisdom to speak wisely in a moment. You you sometimes might be thinking back to a situation you had this past week with somebody. It was maybe a a conversation you had. And and you walk away thinking, I, I could have said that so much better. Or why on earth did I ever say that? We need wisdom from on high to speak into situations. We don't need to be clever. We don't need to be witty. We need God's grace to minister. But also think of the need for multiplied peace within our hearts. Because if you're like me, 
There will be many seasons where that peace of God seems to be distant. It can be far because of sin or because of an attitude or because of getting too busy with the things of the world. Maybe you've been restless within the past few weeks, maybe the past few months. That peace is not really dwelling and abiding within you. Maybe it's the uncertain economic times and you're not being run by peace. The peace of God is not what is within, but agony. An intensified sense of restlessness. And you're fearful and anxious. Maybe it's the fact that your plans that you have so carefully carved out, you think you had your future carved out so nicely and it's not working out. And there's no peace within. Maybe it's the fact that your job is different than what you thought it would be. Maybe it's the strains of parenting and at the outset you thought you'd be some awesome parent. You'd definitely do better than everybody else and you're realizing that's not the case. Perhaps for some of us it's our health. Chronic pains. Just getting over one illness and the next one hits. You're thinking, why am I not getting any better? What's, what's going on? Will this ever change? And you think to yourself, oh, for the peace of God, when my heart is churning within. And so this prayer, this greeting, is so much a wish that the peace of God would be upon us day by day, hour by hour, through the storms, through the valleys, to take away the fears and the anxieties. These greetings aren't just throwaway words. We don't just do this on Sunday because it's some form of tradition. These aren't pie in the sky well wishes. These are prayers, prayers that we wish upon one another, that Almighty God would powerfully provide what he has promised to provide to his people. We are we are praying that he would equip and give multiplied grace and peace to each one of us because we all need it. Oh, so let us hear this morning in the greeting the promised supply from God. Let the full weight of his richness and his beneficence, his goodness, press into the turmoil within our hearts and press out the fears, press out the anxieties and rid our hearts of worry and unbelief. Why? Why? Because God is almighty. He overcomes giants. He slays anything in the way. He moves armies and nations at his will and at his command. The Bible says the nations of this earth are like grasshoppers before him. And so may he give you a real realization of who he is. The Bible says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Isaiah 26, 3. In, uh, in ancient times, the, uh, the favor, the grace of a ruler was critical to survival. Just imagine in those days, in the days of the kingdoms and the kings, going to a ruler and asking for an audience with him. And you just have one request, just one little favor. You're asking this sovereign king. And think of how humble you would approach him, how you would watch his face. 
to see if he was in a good mood or in a bad mood. And as you were making your request, you'd watch for a frown or some sense, just a little sense of favor from this great king. And you would say, as we've seen in movies maybe, would it please your grace? Realizing you're completely at his mercy. And that's just to ask for one favor a peasant may get from a king. What a difference from our heavenly king, our great prince, our sovereign, the king of kings. Think of how he calls us and he says, I multiply gifts and graces to you, children of God. Before our, our uh, sorry, before him whose existence, we, we, we owe all our existence. He's giving grace. Think of David. Remember David said, is there anyone left in the household of Saul who I can do wellness to for, for Jonathan? And they found this cripple, Mephibosheth, this nobody. He, he had nothing. He had no land left, no inheritance. He, he was a man of shame. That's part of his name, actually, Mephibosheth. And David took him and brings him into the household of the palace. And so God has taken you and me from out of sheer grace. We are the Mephibosheths and has taken us into his presence. But that's not enough. Multiplication of grace. What does David do to Mephibosheth? Remember? He gives him lands. He multiplies grace. Watch what he says. David says this. He says, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan, thy father's sake, and I will restore thee all the lands of Saul, thy father. And then he says this, And thou shalt eat bread at my table continually, every day, feasting together with King David. That's what we have, dear people of God multiplied provision in God himself, a feast, a banquet before Almighty God, because his sanctifying grace is at work in our lives. Rejoice in this greeting that God wishes upon his people. I want you to think about what multiplied grace might mean, because it's a sanctifying grace, isn't it? And it causes us to discern the opposite. And watch what it does. Thomas More brought this to my attention. He was actually one of Spurgeon's right-hand men and would later on become a pastor in his own church. More writes this. He says, The more we have the grace of humility, the more we will mourn for pride. It's opposite. The more we experience the grace of patience, the clearer our impatience shows. The more we realize the grace of self-denial the greater we will see how selfish we really are. You see how grace actually exposes the opposite? It's really interesting. Thomas More would go on to write this. He says, the nearer the light, the more visible are the imperfections. And it is the characteristics of a growing state, this is really neat, of growing in grace, not to necessarily notice our own growth, but to see more clearly our shortcomings. That's grace. Grace that helps us to see 
imperfections. Look at it that way. That's really quite a statement, Thomas More said. Do we see our shortcomings and what do we do with them? When we have our shortcomings, do we start to navel gaze? Do we start to make excuses? Do we pretend, well, I'm not really that bad? Or do we want to draw closer and closer to the light? Do we run from God when we see our shortcomings and say, oh, I can't bring them? Or do we run towards him, receiving afresh the provision of Jesus Christ and peace as we realize what he has given us? It is actually by beholding Christ and beholding the light that we are sanctified. And so Paul will write in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, he says this, But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, that's what we look at, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord, beholding God is the means of sanctifying grace. Which leads me to the third point. Fountain. Because the fountain from which all of this grace and peace comes is the knowledge of God. That's what it says here. And this is really interesting because if you've tracked along from 1 Peter... First Peter, up to this point, has the identical greeting, grace and peace be multiplied. But it's what he says next. That's not in First Peter. So Second Peter here is going to further on this in the knowledge or through the knowledge of God. This addition is very understandable when we think about what's going on in the letter because it is intimately connecting the knowledge of God with the provision of grace and peace. The false teachers claimed some sort of philosophical higher knowledge. They were seductive, and they basically, in their own knowledge, said that this is how we should live, and this is how we should experience God. They claimed the true knowledge of God, but they didn't know him at all. And so Peter says the only way to get grace and peace is in the knowledge of God. And the word he uses here for knowledge is epignoskin, where you hear the word gnosis, but a prefix to it. And gnosis means knowledge. It's the basic word for knowledge. But Paul and Peter love this word epignosis when they are countering gnosis, when they're over against false teachers who claim some sort of knowledge, they specifically use epignosis. Because epignosis means a true acknowledgement, a true recognition. And that's why I like the word acknowledgement, to recognize it is not just this, but it is an embracing of God's truth. And that's the word he uses here. It's multiplied through the acknowledgement of God himself. John Calvin would say this, as we perceive the grace of God, according to his measures of faith, then it is said to increase according to our perception, our knowledge, and it becomes more fully known to us. Puritan John Trapp says it this way. He says, all of the grace that a man hath, it passeth through the understanding." And the difference in stature or height in Christianity grows from different degrees of knowledge. But not just mere head knowledge. True 
acknowledgement. Just keep that in mind. You see the circle of grace in this greeting. Grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God. In verse 1, we saw that faith itself is obtained. It is given. It is allotted by God. So we see that from the outset, to believe is a gift. It's a gracious gift by which he justifies us and gives us grace and peace, right? Now, as this acknowledgement grows, it gives us further sanctifying grace and peace. And the further he sanctifies us, guess what? The more we know God. And the more we know God, the more grace he gives. And the more grace he gives, the further we know him. And it becomes a circle of knowing God more, embracing him more. And from that fountain will flow further grace and peace. It is this constant cycle of the knowledge of God giving grace and peace. So this is a prayer desire. Because we're utterly dependable upon God in Christianity. This is so huge. Because people can study the Bible all their lives. They can become seminary professors or doctors of theology. People can become pastors, preachers, teachers. Read your Bible through and through and be completely unmoved and spiritually dead and have no life within you. Paul would write this. He says, For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but who? The spirit of God that is in him. And then he says this about the believer. Almost in contradistinction to the seminary professor who's dead, potentially or the Bible man, or the guy who grew up in the church all his life and giving all the Sunday school answers, he says this, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. You see the words freely given? That's grace of God. It is the spirit that gives us knowledge. Let us live in humble dependence upon that spirit. You know, as I was meditating on this, I was thinking, oh, the sweet blessing of knowing God by faith. What a blessing it is. <laughs> Maybe your spiritual life has been so discouraging as of late and the peace of the Lord seems distant. Do not neglect your time with the Lord. Just like if you want to get to know someone better, what do you have to do? You have to spend time with them. You have to be close to them. The more you spend time with the Lord in prayer and seeking him, he will warm your hearts to him. We sang earlier on, uh, give me no dreams, no prophet ecstasies. That's what the false teachers were doing. They were looking for the knowledge of God in some sort of experiences, in some sort of esoteric knowledge, new revelations, some sort of substitute. And say, oh, that's the knowledge of God. Surely, if you have this slaying in the spirit type stuff, that's not the knowledge of God. That's a substitute. And so John Calvin, again, he says this, the more anyone advances in the knowledge of God, every blessing increases. That's that circle. Also equally with the sense of the divine love. If this is what you want, Look what he says next. Whosoever then aspires to the full fruition 
of this blessed life, which is mentioned by Peter here, he says, we must remember to observe the right way. Don't be tempted with these esoteric substitutes. Don't look for idols to try to satisfy what your heart is yearning for. Love God as he has revealed himself in his word. Know him as he calls us to know him. God is not a concept to be marveled at. God is not a myth to be dreamt up in our knowledge of history. God is not an object to be subjected to our scientific study. God is not an idol to be molded and fashioned according to what I want. He is the infinite creator. All things are to be loved and known, or he is in all things to be loved and known and adored and worshipped. Feast on this God. I ask you a question. Can, can the increasing and expanding knowledge of God ever disappoint? Is it ever going to disappoint you to know God more? Is there ever going to be regret when you said in your life, I spent too much time in the Word knowing God? Are you ever going to say that we got too close to God, that we got to the edges of who God might be, and we've almost concluded we understand him. Are you ever going to say that? Can a mere mortal like you or I ever dare to say that I have comprehended the eternal God? No. And so fellowshipping by faith with God has been the sanctifying joy of many saints who have gone before. We mentioned a number of names. George Whitfield, John Wesley, William Wilberforce, John Calvin. We can mention name after name and many and many a saint who will never be known until eternity, but they fellowshiped and feasted on the knowledge of God and it was their life. It was grace abounding to them. It'll never disappoint you to pursue God more. Do you believe that? Are you going to hunger for him more? That's a craving and a desire of grace. God, give me more grace. The most rewarding pursuit of the Christian, the highest goal, the greatest good, the most soul-satisfying life is one that is captivated by God. It brings me to the last point foundation because the foundation of all of this knowledge is God and Jesus our Lord it's not any knowledge as I said earlier that can do and so the Bible is clear Peter is clear you cannot know God outside of Jesus Christ Jesus says this no one knoweth the father but the son and he to whom the son will reveal him he would say in John 17, 3, in his high priestly prayer, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. False religions look to get around Jesus. False religions look to demote, humanize, dehumanize, whatever, Jesus. They make substitute 
saviors. That's what they do. Johann Peter Long notices in the Greek here is pretty striking that when it says of God and our Savior, there's only one the in front of God. Because the knowledge of the God and of Jesus gets tied together as Father and Son are tied together in one. There's an essence here. They are one. And so think of the depth of this greeting. Because remember how I said the knowledge of God comes through the Spirit who tells us all these things? What you see in this little greeting that we've heard so many times is actually the depth of the Trinity. The Father, who we saw in verse 1, he calls us in grace. Grace from the Father calling us in his electing love. The Son securing the victory of salvation and giving us peace with God and the Spirit applying that knowledge to our hearts. Grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus. It is a Trinitarian blessing. May all of God and the richness of him be multiplied to the church. I just want to end this by thinking about that last little bit and of Jesus our Lord the phrase Jesus our Lord actually like this only occurs twice in the entire New Testament here and in Romans 4 now in spite of being a relatively short book three chapters Second Peter is loaded with the lordship of Jesus Christ because that is precisely what the false teachers were undermining his lordship and so Peter puts it on a pinnacle, the lordship of Jesus Christ. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, they denied the Lord that bought them. That's exactly what apostate churches will do, deny the Lord. We're seeing that in our culture as Caesar's lordship seems to dominate the dictates of churches what we will teach, when we will teach, if we will teach, seems to be dictated not by Jesus our Lord anymore. That is a mark of apostasy, falling away. And so the knowledge of God and Jesus, because of his lordship, demands and is evidenced by submission to him. Are you prepared to be submitted to him? Grace and peace comes through placing yourself under his lordship. His lordship should define how you think about marriage. His lordship defines politics. It defines education. It defines relationships. It defines how we understand the environment and creation. It defines the, the scope of how you do your work, why you do your work, the idea of vocation recovered in the Reformation because they realized vocation wasn't just for the priest. It was for everybody. We all have a calling. And the Lordship of Christ demands how and commands how we live in our callings. It commands your time, your leisure, what you do with your spare time is not yours. He owns time. It's not just Sunday. It's not just your prayer time after your meal. He owns it all. It defines and demands his lordship also in church.
what we do, how we worship, is not ours to regulate. It's regulated by the word of God. And so in closing, I want you to notice that it says, grace and peace be multiplied unto you, unto you. Because Peter, as an apostle, is wishing this upon his flocks. It is the heart of a caring shepherd for the church to want them to grow in grace and peace. And so pastors, elders, leaders, love your flocks. Pray for the flock. Pray for the sheep. And every Lord's Day, we extend this greeting to echo the heart of the apostles and this prayer for you and for us. Notice, however, the switch. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord, our Lord. This is also important. It's a little word. He's throwaway words sometimes, but at the same time, he's saying, Jesus is Lord of the whole church, apostle and his readers. We don't have popes. Pastors aren't above you. We oversee you. But the chief shepherd, the Lord, he is the king of the church. He is the sovereign. There's no hierarchy among us. It's Christ. We worship him. And so we, we wish you this blessing and grace multiplied. But we stand together with you, realizing shoulder to shoulder, we serve King Jesus. We worship at his feet together. Together we bow before him. Together we all, each one of us, I just as much, look expectantly to his grace in my life. Are you outside of Jesus this morning? Do you know his lordship? He graciously calls sinners like you and me to himself. This morning, as we were driving to church, I was thinking, as you see those crosses on the side of the road sometime, and I'm, I know some of the people who died, and you, you, you think 17-year-old here, you see a coroner, and you think 22-year-old, and, and I know there's another one across town, I don't know how old she was, but these people died in the prime of their lives. They, they never thought it would be their last day. But it was. And they stand before the eternal God who has been extending his hand as Jesus all day long. He's pleading, but you would not. Will you come to him? He says in, in Isaiah 55, come, come to the waters. And then he says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. What you think you know, forsake it. And let them return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Today is a day of grace. Today is a day in which you can know the peace that passes all understanding. I plead with you, if you are outside of Jesus, even though you've come to church all your life, come to him today as a beggar that needs the bread of life and be satisfied with the grace of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you and uh, we just thank you that you lavish your church 
with grace and peace. And we pray, Lord, that you would multiply your sanctifying grace and peace here among this flock. Shape us, sharpen us, draw us closer to Christ. Help us to feast on all that you are, Lord, to to come to the table of your presence frequently and often and, and to know how rich you are and how good you are for us. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here outside of you, that you would justify them and bring them to peace with you. In Jesus' name, amen.